Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In the spring of 1998, uh, I was a pastor of a church of a different denomination, and I had befriended a man in our community by the name of Freddie. Uh, Freddie and I, uh, we fished together, we played softball together, and we hunted together, played basketball, hung out together, struck up quite a friendship. He was not a believer, but he then did begin to uh, attend worship services. And, and of course, he'd ask me questions, and he paid really close attention in the services. And some Sundays in particular, when I would uh, uh, have an invitation at the end of the messages, I began to notice that he would hold on to the pew in front of him and his knuckles would literally turn white. He was holding on to it so tightly. So, so one Thursday evening uh, after dinner, uh, I just felt that the Holy Spirit was prompting me to go and visit Freddie. And so I told Catherine, I'll be back in a few hours. And I went to his home and I walked in and, and sat down and said, hey, I want to talk to you about your relationship with God. And like I often do with people, I opened up my Bible to this passage that we're in this morning, Romans chapter 3. And I asked him to read uh, out loud uh, verse 10. And I was sitting next to him on the couch, and as he read verse 10, my eyes that evening dropped down to verses 11, 12, and 13. Verses that, you know, I'd read many times through the years, but that night as I saw those words, no one understands God, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside, no one does good, no, not one, it was like all heaven broke loose in my soul. And the Holy Spirit flipped a light switch. You know those cartoons where a cartoon character has a light bulb above his head and all of a sudden it comes on when he finally gets it, right? Well, there was about a million watt lumen or whatever light bulb that went off in my head. And guys, my brain went into hyperdrive. 
passages of scripture that I had struggled with through the years, that I had even preached through through the years, that just were not making sense. Uh, All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just started connecting the dots of scripture in my head, and things began, dominoes just began to fall. I realized things that I had been teaching and had preached through the years, how they were incorrect, and I was having one of those Damascus Road, Copernican Revelation type of experiences. It went on so long that Kelly actually shook me by the, by the, uh, uh, by the shoulder and he said, uh, Jerry, are you okay? You know? And uh, I, I came out of it and I said, okay. You know. That passage, this passage, I, I went there that night for his sake, not realizing that it was actually for my sake that God took me there that evening because he changed the trajectory of my entire ministry. In the first eight chapters of the, or eight verses of this chapter, Paul employs a rhetorical uh, technique that was common in the ancient world. He he essentially sets up a, a pretend question and answer uh, session. Maybe some of these objections were things he'd heard through the years, but he's imagining some of the objections that he would hear from the Roman Christians, especially after the bombshell that he had dropped in chapter two, that you were not a Jew simply because you had been circumcised. Um, and, and those verses, we're not, that's not the main focus of this morning. We're going to focus more on verses 9 to 20, because in this passage, Paul is concluding a section of Scripture that he started back in chapter 1, verse 18, with that verse that says that the wrath of God is being revealed upon all unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men. He's been teaching us that you may be an immoral, irreligious Gentile, or perhaps you are a very moral Gentile or a Jewish person. You may even be a very religious upstanding spiritual Jew, but there is one simple thing that binds all of us together regardless of who we are or our backgrounds, and that is apart from Christ, every one of us stands before God thoroughly unrighteous, richly deserving His displeasure and His judgment. Now, for those of you who like an outline this uh, morning, we're going to unpack this truth, this passage of of Scripture, with a couple of gospel applications. The first of which is that we are all, every one of us, radically and thoroughly corrupted by sin. Verse 9 says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He's now speaking as a Jew, someone who's raised as a Pharisee, answering these Jewish accusations. He says, what then? Are we any better off? And he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Every one of us are born into this world as sinners. And to understand how thoroughly and radically corrupted we are by sin, in these verses, verses 9 to to 18, Paul puts before us the universality of our sinfulness, the nature of our sinfulness, and the extent of our sinfulness. Here, the universality of our sinfulness. He says in verse 9, all 
All are under sin. Verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. God's language describing humanity's sinfulness is absolute and unequivocal. All are under sin. To be under sin is to live under the domain of sin. Think of it like citizenship, right? We are all under the flag of America, you know, as Americans. We are citizens of the United States. To be under sin is to be a citizen of the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light, to not be a citizen of the kingdom of God. We're born into this kingdom of sin because we are children of Adam. In Romans chapter 5, in a couple of weeks, we're going to go there and we're going to see how momentous this is that we are born children of Adam. The universality of sin. Every human, as human apart from Jesus Christ is born thoroughly, radically corrupted by sin. Now to understand the nature of our sinfulness, we've got to dig into a couple of verses. Verses 11 and 18. No one seeks after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. John Stott has said that we can summarize the nature of our sinfulness. We can even summarize these two verses with one word, and that is the word ungodliness. Ungodliness. We've already run across the word ungodliness. It was at the very beginning of this extended digression that's going to conclude here in chapter 3, verse 20. It was that digression that began in chapter 1, verse 18. I partially quoted it a second ago. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Our ungodliness prompts the wrath of God to be revealed from heaven. So what does it mean to be ungodly? How are we to understand ungodliness? This is where those words seek and the fear of God. No one seeking after God and no one fearing God are important. If we understand what's behind those expressions, we'll better understand and comprehend ungodliness. So let's start with this idea of seeking and seeking after God. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. Uh, I look across the audience and I'm pretty safe in saying, especially since our younger children have left and we're left mostly with adolescents and adults, that most of us in here at one point in our life, maybe many years ago, maybe decades, it may have been this weekend, depending upon our marital status, we had a time in our life where we were in a room, maybe a classroom, a party, something, and somebody walked in the door. Fellas, a girl walked in the door, and everything else went blank, right? Your eyes got big, your heart started beating a little bit more, you heard lousy 70s music, chicka chicka wow wow, you know, something like that happened, and you went, in your mind at least, you went, who is she? Right? Yes, yeah, some of you finished the sentence, right? I mean, and, and what did you do? Well, the bolder ones of us, right, we went up to her and we laid out some cheesy line and got 
you know, rejected and humiliated and all our friends laughed at us. But most of us were smart enough, whether it's guys, gals, gals is a classroom, he walks into class and you go, woo, and before he even made it to his desk, all your girlfriends knew, "Uh uh-huh, you're interested in him. And what did we do? We put out feelers, we wanted to know more about, we wanted to find out about this person. We start investigating what's their name, where do they come from, what do they like, what do they dislike. We wanted as much intel as we possibly could get before we did what? We made our approach and we wanted to introduce ourselves and we wanted to get to know them. We were beginning to pursue a relationship with them, right? You remember all that? Remember when that all happened? Fellows, some of your ladies said, yeah, and you need to keep doing that a little bit. It would help, all right? right? That, that's, we've all been there, okay? Well, this is the idea in a very real way of the idea of seek here. It means something similar, but it's related to God. It's to it's to, to see God. I mean, we can see God everywhere. He says, I'm everywhere within creation. He's already established this earlier in the chapters. And he says, I'm everywhere. You see me. And now you, you make the effort to find out more about me, to find out what I'm like. What do I like and dislike? And, 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 and how, what kind of person am I? And, and you make this effort. And then you, you want to come around me and you want to get to know me. You want to enter into a relationship with me. That's what it means to seek after God. And of course, the indictment, ungodliness means we don't even bother. We have all of this before us and there's absolutely no interest in getting to know him at all. Okay? And now the fear of God. Now, when we hear the word fear, we think, especially with Halloween, right? Being scared out of our pants, abject terror, trembling and all. No, not at all. It's not what the fear of God means. And Psalm, in fact, the psalmist says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good and understanding. The fear of the Lord is an, it's an living in light of the greatness of God. It's an inner awe. An inner joy that fills your life, an inner um, wonder, an inner love and, and worship of God that is due to his greatness. So the nature of our sinfulness is that we do not desire to know more about God. We don't put forward any effort to come into relationship with our creator. And we certainly don't live in awe of him. We don't seek to live and fulfill his desires and to glorify him with our lives. Instead, what do we do? We seek to live life on our terms, to glorify ourselves, to satisfy our needs and our wants. And instead of worshiping God, we worship ourselves. So the essence of ungodliness and the nature of our sinfulness is that right there, the worship of ourselves. John Stott has, has written that God's complaint is that we do not really seek him at all, making his glory our supreme concern, that we have not set him before us, that there is no room for him in our thoughts, and that we do not love him with all our powers. Sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Now read this last sentence aloud with me. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. So the nature of our sinfulness 
can be described as ungodliness, a desire to be God, to worship self, and a lack of desire for our Creator. We're all born with it. It's universal. The question is, how pervasive is it within us? What's the extent of our sinfulness, this ungodliness that we have? Well, for that answer, I want us to go back 1,600 years. Let's go back to the end of the 300s, the beginning of the 400s. End of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th century. St. Augustine is the leading voice in the church at that time. The pa- a pastor, a bishop of the church at Hippo, a theologian. He writes prayers, they're published. In one of his prayers, he writes these words. O oh God, command what thou wouldst, and grant what thou dost command. Oh God, command whatever you want and give us the power to do whatever you command. Well, there was a British monk who came to Rome around 410 AD, and much like Martin Luther, you know, 1,100 years later, he was appalled by what he was seeing among Christians in the city of Rome. Their behavior, their conduct, it was lax. It was, by his standards, very sinful, very ungodly. And as he looked around as to why they were living this way, he ultimately put the blame for everyone's lifestyles and lack of holiness at the feet of Augustine. And he said, he said the issue here is Augustine's prayer, the, the theology behind his prayer. He didn't have a problem with the first half of the prayer, that God would command whatever he wanted. He had a problem with the second half, that we were praying to God to give us the power to obey those commands. This British monk's name was Pelagius. He said, by praying and asking God to give us the power to carry out the commands is to imply that we don't have the ability to obey commands that God gives us. And why would God give us commands in the first place if we don't have the ability to obey? That makes no sense. And this sparked the beginning of a theological controversy that continues to this day. This, this British monk's name was Pelagius. And if, if you view the, the heart of a human being, the, the inner workings of the, 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 the control center of humanity as a circle, right? This is our heart. Pelagius says we're born as a blank slate, sinless. Theoretically, he even says he knew of people who actually, through their own abilities, perfectly obeyed the law of God, never sinned. So in no need of God's grace. God's grace is a great thing to have because most of us choose to sin, but we didn't have to sin. We could theoretically live a holy life. Now, Pelagius lost, but there was an alternate view that arose, especially during the Dark Ages. It was pervasive during that time, all the way up to the time of the Reformation. It is still, I would suggest, maybe the dominant view within evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholic Christianity today. It's called semi-Pelagianism. You see the circle up here. It's not completely white, is it? It's mostly black. What do you think that's saying? It's saying that, ah, uh, no, we are not born a clean slate. We're born sinners. We're in really, really bad shape, but there's still some good in us. And that good in us is what allows us 
to express faith and receive Christ or reject Christ, right? So all of us are sinners. We're very sick. Maybe we're even on our deathbeds. We're so sick. But there's still an aspect of us that we can express faith and receive Christ. Well, that's Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Augustine obviously didn't agree with that at all. He can be represented like this. And this is what, we, what Luther and John Calvin would reclaim 1,100 years later in the Reformation. It says, when you look at the pervasiveness of sin in the Scriptures, it's not that we are sick with sin. The issue is we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We don't need a doctor to come and give us some medicine. We need a divine intervention to resurrect us from the dead because that's how affected we are by sin. We are radically, thoroughly corrupted by sin. Now, why do we believe, especially in our church, that this, this circle here actually represents the condition of humanity unless God intervenes in the life of a Christian? It's because of passages that are before us right here. Listen to the, what is said here. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Our legal standing before God. We stand before him guilty. No one understands. Our minds are so darkened by sin. We're so self-centered, self-oriented, that we can't perceive the most obvious of spiritual truths, even if it smacks us straight in the face. And this is why we call good evil and evil good. No one seeks for God, as mentioned just a second ago, it's, it's all about us, right? Uh, all have turned aside, verse 12. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. At the core of our being, at our will, our will is enslaved to sin. All we like sheep have gone astray, the prophet says. None of us understand, and we've all turned aside. So much so that the good that we do, the civic goodness, the things that people may clap and commend us for, no matter what it may be, it is still polluted by sin because the good that we do is tainted and our motivations themselves are still focused on self to some degree or another. They're not done for God's glory. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The extent of sin is such that everything we do and every part of us is tainted with sin. This, this is what is known as radical corruption, okay? The, the older term is known as total depravity, total depravity. This is what rocked my world that night. When I read these verses, I saw, oh, that's total what, depravity. Uh, listen, um, <clears throat> excuse me, let me get some water here. J.I. Packer, in his book on concise theology, says, Total depravity does not mean that our bad is as bad as bad can be, right? But it does mean that our good 
is not as good as it should be. Okay? Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. It does not mean that what will come out of our mouths are the most evil and vile and horrible things that can ever be said within human existence. It does not mean that we will necessarily participate in the most heinous types of activities and crimes that can ever be. Total depravity does not mean that we will all become cannibals like in some version of the Lord of the Flies, you know, a type of existence. And part of the reason why that doesn't happen is because of God's common grace working within civilization and even within the lives of the lost. What depravity does mean, though, is that apart from God, apart from the Holy Spirit working within us, apart from the grace of God being present within us, everything that we do, everything that we say, in some way or another, it is going to be tainted and polluted by sin due to our own self-centeredness and our own desire to enthrone ourselves as king of our lives, to worship ourselves. And why would we ever do this? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Remember my friend? I told you about it at the beginning. After he shook me uh, uh, out of my trance, I went through all the other verses in the book of Romans I wanted to take him through, and man, it was going as smooth as you could imagine. Every question I asked, he popped out the answer. I thought to myself, this guy has been listening so well to my preaching. He is just, this is like taking candy from a baby, right? Got to the end, and I said, uh, hey, do you believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again? Yes, I do. I believe this. Do you believe that you're a sinner and you need to have your sins forgiven? Yes, I do believe this. Absolutely. All right, are you ready to commit your life to Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior? No, absolutely not. Okay. I, had, I had to do a, a, you know, a jerk because I was already moving on to telling him how to do the sinner's prayer. He caught me off guard. And I said, what? What, what do you mean? He goes, no, not, not tonight. Not really interested. And I said, oh, okay, all right. Maybe we misunderstood here for a second. Okay, you're going to be leaving, and he worked third shift, and you're going to be going to the plant in a little bit. What happens if here on Highway 17, you get front-ended by one of these dump trucks, and, and you die? What's going to happen? He goes, I'm going to go to hell. What? You know, you know we had that kind of relationship. I could say that. What? You know, what, why, what do you mean? Yeah, I, I understand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to hell. All right, all right, all right. Let's, let's go. I took him back to Romans 3. <laughs> and I went, I went to Romans 3, and then Romans 3, he just sent his death. And he, and he finally just, he said, stop, Jerry, stop. I get it. I understand. You're the one who doesn't understand. And then he said something I never will forget. He says, I just don't want to. I just don't want to. You see, and by the way, the good news is two years later, he calls me up and he goes, guess what? I've turned to Christ. He's my Savior. So that was the good news. We never waste time planning the gospel in people's lives, folks. But on that night, I think the bigger agenda was God was teaching Jerry Clem something 
about the nature and the pervasiveness and the extent of our sinfulness. That unless God miraculously intervenes in our lives and does something in our hearts and regenerates us and brings us out of that state of black pollution of sin, every one of us will say, I just don't want to. I want my life on my terms the way I would have it. And I walked out of that house that evening realizing that salvation from beginning to end is solely due to the grace of God, that he is the beginner, the author, and the finisher of salvation. And it changed the trajectory of my ministry. Second application, regardless of how we try to save ourselves, we stand before God speechless and condemned. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By the law of God, we realize our sinfulness And our need for a Savior, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that the law of God is our tutor. It teaches us how far we fall short of the perfection required if we're going to self-justify ourselves into heaven. It teaches us how badly we need a Savior. But what about those people who don't have the law of God? What about those people who do not ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Brian pointed out from Romans 2 that God is that absolutely just, impartial judge of all of humanity. But consider this fact, that the law of God, the moral law of God, is inherent within every one of us, and that alone is more than enough to cause everyone to be speechless standing before God condemned. Uh, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, let me close with this, uh, this story, this illustration. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, back in the 1970s, he wrote a book called The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And he said, let's imagine a scene. Imagine that every baby that is born has hung around their neck an invisible, he said, tape recorder, because at that time, that's all we had. Children tape recorder were these big, bulky devices. Okay. Uh, think of it like children. Think of it like uh, an MP3 player that can record, okay? Something like that. Uh, imagine that God puts around our children's necks an invisible voice recorder. How's that? And, and these voice recorders, they turn on and off every time we utter a moral judgment, Not an aesthetic judgment, not like, wow, that's a beautiful sunset. Not like, you know, wow, that pizza was delicious, okay? Not an aesthetic judgment, a moral judgment like, she's such a gossip. He's so angry all the time, okay? And so every time, every day, we order a moral judgment, it turns on, captures those words, turns off. This happens many times a day, hundreds of times in a year, thousands upon thousands of times in our lifetime, it captures these moral judgments. Then he says that the scene shifts. We come to the end of time. We're standing before God as judge, and some people see 
and say, God, it's not fair that you are judging us according to your law. We never heard the gospel. We never even heard of your law. We never even heard of Jesus Christ. And so God says, okay, since you claim to not know my laws, I will lay aside my perfect standard of righteousness, and instead, I'm going to judge you on this. And he presses the play buttons, and out of everyone's recorders comes their own voices, and to their horror, they begin to hear condemnation upon condemnation, thousands upon thousands of judgments and condemnations. She shouldn't do that. What's he thinking acting that way until finally all of the recordings stop? And when the recordings stop, God says, this this will be the standard and the basis of my judgment. How well have you kept the moral standards that you have proven that you know and understand by how vastly you have applied them to other people. You who said and accused others of lying, do you not understand? I captured every moment that you stretched the truth. You who condemned the person for being angry, I captured every thought of your heart that was hateful and bitter towards someone else. You who was spiteful towards another, I captured every opportunity that you expressed that envy and jealousy. Church, every human being, none of us can claim to have consistently lived up to the standards of morality that we ourselves embrace and give our allegiance to. And therefore, everyone, regardless if they ever hear the name of Jesus Christ, stands before God speechless and condemned. Those who've heard of Christ simply stand more condemned than those who have not. Listen, the good news here is that there was one who took the law and he perfectly obeyed it. He took that law that we were to obey and he did it in our place. And then he stepped on the cross and he took the wrath for our disobedience to the law. We're going to dig into that next week. In the last portion of chapter 3, this beautiful passage that tells us how God's wrath has been completely satisfied in Jesus Christ. But as we close out this morning, maybe there's somebody here who's like my friend. Several years, a couple of decades ago. And like him, you know all the facts, but maybe you've not committed your life to Christ. Maybe you have questions. I want to encourage you. There's a couple of ways you can get this answered. One is to mark it on your communication card. And and I'll come by your house. I'll sit on the couch next to you. (laughs) Or we'll go to a restaurant together and we'll go through the scriptures We'll answer your questions. Or you don't even have to wait that long. At the close of the service, you can go right over here to the care area where we'll have people waiting for you. And they'll talk with you and they'll pray with you. And they'll be willing to take you through the exact same scriptures. I hope God moves in your heart in that way. Lord Jesus, thank you for the the day, the chance, the opportunity to go through this passage of scripture. Lord, we know that on our own, 
We have no hope. We stand before you silent and condemned. We know that we have absolutely every right to experience eternity separated from your presence. But Father, we also know that because you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, that he died in our place, we know that because there was a day that you opened our eyes and you gave us a new heart that could believe the glorious truth of the gospel, that in you, in that gospel, there is the power, the righteousness of God that is ours through grace when we turn to Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. And we pray for the ones that are in here this morning who've yet to have that experience. We pray for our loved ones that do not yet know Christ. And Lord, we would ask that you would give all of these who we know that we love, would you give them a heart that loves Christ? Would you help them to see the truth of the gospel, see the truth of their own desperate situation, and help them to turn from their self-worship and from their own sin and embrace our beautiful Savior? We ask that for the good of those who we love, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.